Chapter 9 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 9 Rodomont and Isabella. The grand assault on Paris, as already narrated, had been repulsed, and the Saracens forced to retreat with great loss, and the Christians were in hopes that they would soon gain a final victory and drive them altogether out of France. But the balance of power was speedily changed in favour of King Agramant and against Charlemagne. Rinaldo, after the great battle in which he took the lead with his new levies, had been told that Orlando had gone away with Angelica, during his forced absence in Scotland on his mission for Charles, and as soon as he had done his duty to his king, he started in pursuit of Orlando to take from him Angelica by force. He did not know that already madness had fallen on Orlando and that Angelica had given herself to Medoro. In the meantime, whilst Charles was deprived of his two greatest supports, Orlando and Rinaldo, the forces of Agramant had been strengthened by the arrival of the strongest warriors on the side of the Saracens, Rogero, Marfisa, Gradasso, Sacripant, and, wonderful to tell, Mandricardo and Rodomont had returned together to aid King Agramant. It would be too long a story to tell in this place how all this good fortune came at one time to Agramant, but something must be said of the coming in peace of Rodomont and Mandricardo. When Rodomont ran beside the galloping dwarf in pursuit of Mandricardo, he had vowed to himself that he would seize the first horse that he met, to whomsoever it might belong. And there came in his path a maiden, riding a palfrey and leading a beautiful war-horse equipped ready for battle. And Rodomont said to the maiden, I would that the horse had his master on his back, and with an easy mind I would take possession. But in spite of my need, I cannot rob a woman. And the maiden replied, And I too wish that the master of the horse were here, and that he would soon make you repent of your boasting. And Rodomont said, Who is this great champion? Rogero, said she. Then, replied Rodomont, I will take the horse and you can say to Ruggiero that I will pay him the hire when and where he will, and say to him that I am Rodomont, and he will easily find me if he wishes to fight, for wherever I go, I light up the way with my deeds. Now, this was the famous horse Frontino, that in the siege of Albracca had been stolen from Sacripant by Brunello, the master thief and by him it had been given to Ruggiero when he was discovered on Mount Carina by the aid of the ring that Brunello had stolen from Angelica. But the story of Frontino is too long to be told in this place. In fleetness and in battle he was a great horse, worthy to be named with Bayardo and Rabican and Brilliadoro and the other most famous horses of those days and when Rodomont seized him, he was being sent by Bradamant to Ruggiero, and she had told her maiden that the very name of Ruggiero would be a sufficient safeguard. 
but she had not foreseen the needs or the pride of Rodomont. Riding this horse, Rodomont had found Mandricardo soon after the fight in which he had killed Zerbino and gained possession of Orlando's sword, and the two had fought for long without result under the eyes of Doralis. And in the midst of the fight, a messenger had come who told them the news of the great defeat of Agramont and urgently prayed them to come to the aid of the Saracens. By the mediation of Doralis, the fight was stayed. The terrible Rodomont was devoted to his suzerain, Agramont, and he vowed that he would fight with no one until he had rescued his king from peril. Under the sway of their love for Doralis, at last the rival kings reached the camp of Agramont, and they were followed by the other Saracen leaders, each impelled by loyalty to Agramont. With this accession of strength to the pagans, and loss to the Christians, the Saracens threatened to drive back Charles again behind the walls of Paris. But God in his mercy sent discord into the Saracen camp, and in a moment all the great chiefs who had newly come to succour Agramont were engaged in the hottest quarrels with one another. In vain the Saracen leader tried to make peace between them. The utmost he could achieve was to arrange by lot a series of combats. But the strife that had again broken out between Rodomont and Mandricardo, he stayed by an appeal to Doralis herself. He induced the rivals to agree to accept her choice as final, and when her decision had been given, to make no appeal to arms. Both gave their assent in full confidence of success. Long before the arrival of the Tartar king, Rodomont had loved Doralis, and in her honour he had carried her favour into every battle. His love for her was known to all men, and she had been promised to him by her father in marriage. Rodomont had not the least doubt that the choice of Doralis would be in his favour, and so thought the whole army of the Saracens. But Mandricardo knew in his heart how much he had gained of her love, in their wanderings through the forest. The two chiefs made a solemn oath before King Agramant to accept the decision of Doralis, and then they presented themselves before the Spanish princess. She lowered her eyes as if ashamed, and said in a soft voice that she loved most the Tartar. Rodomont was at first so astounded that he could not speak, and his face burned with shame at the affront. But as soon as his wanted wrath had driven away every other thought, he drew his sword and cried out that the decision was unjust and unfair, and he swore that he would accept the judgment of no fickle woman, but only the judgment of his own true sword. But Agramant put Rodomont in the wrong for breaking his oath, and he appealed, and not in vain, to his loyalty, and made him sheath his sword and this double scorn from his lady and his king was more than Rodomont could bear, and he left the camp and took with him only two squires. Though he had forced himself to obey Agramant, he was filled with ungovernable rage. He rode away in fury on Frontino, the horse he had taken from Rogero, and Rogero was unable to pursue him, because he was bound by lot to fight first of all with Mandricardo. And as Rodomont hastened to leave far behind the scene of his shame, he
he roused the echoes of the rocks with curses on the fickleness of woman. Ah, woman, woman, he cried, how easily you change your mind and show us the very opposite of good faith. Unlucky is the wretch who believes in you. Not the longest service nor the best proved love can hold your heart from changing in a moment. I have not lost you, Doralis, because in any way Mandricardo was the better man. No reason is there for my loss of you except this. You are a woman. Oh, accursed sex! I believe that God or nature has sent you into the world only to be a heavy burden to man and to spoil his happiness, just as God or nature has created snakes and bears and wolves and has filled the air with flies and wasps and hornets and has sown tares and weeds in the corn. Why did not nature so contrive that man should not be born of woman? Apples and pears are got by grafting on diverse trees. And why not man himself? And be not puffed up, O women, because man is the son of woman. From a thorn springs the rose, and from a fetid root the lily. Greedy are ye, O women, and proud and disdainful, and you know not the meaning of love or good faith or wisdom, but brazen and cruel and unjust and ungrateful, you are born into the world like an everlasting pestilence. So Rodimant passed on his way, reviling women with an infinite variety of curses, and sometimes he awakened the echoes of the rocks with the roaring of his curses, and sometimes he muttered them low and deep to himself. And the anger of Rodimont against Agramant, his king, was not less than against Doralis, and he longed to see so great a storm of evil fall on his kingdom in Africa that not one stone should be left upon another, and that Agramant himself should be driven from his kingdom in grief and pain and should become a miserable beggar. And then, and then, he... Rodamont would restore to him everything and set him again in his ancient seat and he would make him know that a true friend, whether he is in the right or in the wrong, should always be upheld against all the world. At last, after long and furious riding, Rodamont took pity on the good horse Frontino and he boarded a vessel and sailed down the Rhone on his way to the sea. Then, weary of the river, again he took to the land, but neither on land nor on water could he find peace for his soul, and he thought to go back to his own kingdom in Africa. It chanced, however, that he came to a little church that in the perils of the Saracen invasion had been deserted by the priests and left a ruin. It lay beside a river not far from the mouth, and the ruin pleased Rodamont in its desolation, and he made of it a dwelling-place, and there he stayed, brooding over his loss of Doralis and the injustice of Agramont in giving her to his rival. The violence of his rage had passed, but in silent anger he cursed woman and God and fate. And one day, as he stood gazing sullenly over the fields, there came in his sight a lady clad in black, and beside her a long-bearded monk and a great war-horse laden with a burden all in black. Such was the beginning of the meeting of Isabella and Rodamont. Isabella was worn out with fatigue, 
for she had come on foot all the long journey over rough forest ways, pacing slowly beside the coffin of Zerbino with its sable pall. And at her side walked the hermit, her guide and comforter, making ready her soul for the life of consolation. And already she seemed as meek and lowly as a nun, and a glimmer of heavenly faith shone through her tears and her wan cheeks. Her beauty had changed from the beauty of the joy in life to the beauty of the hope in death. Out of her pale face her great dark eyes looked on things unseen, and her foot fell with light uncertain steps, as if the solid earth were a cloud. And suddenly, in the path of this vision of sorrow, appeared Rodamont, and as he looked upon her grief and marked her tears and all the signs of misery, the heart of the Saracen was troubled. Her beauty shone like a light into the darkness of his soul, and his sullen anger fled as darkness flees from light. He looked, and in a moment his hatred of woman had gone, and his love of Isabella had come. And the light grew as she came nearer, and cranny after cranny of his soul gave up its darkness, and with the light in his soul there came gentleness in his voice and bearing. And he asked Isabella why she was so distressed. Meekly she told him her story, and gave words to the stream of her thoughts, and she spoke as one in a dream. But to Rodamond her voice was the music of love. And quick as fire his new passion burned in his heart, and gave him words and reasons, to try to change her purpose of passing life with her dead in a house of religion. And when the hermit heard the pagan speaking with the voice of the tempter, so little did he know the heart of Isabella that he feared she might yield. And uplifted with the love of the glory of God, he thought, in his goodness of heart, that God had sent him this pagan to be converted to the true faith. And as Rodamont spoke to Isabella with growing passion, the hermit broke in with the teachings of the elements of the true religion. But the light of love had not reached every dark nook in the soul of Rodamond, and deep down in his soul was the black hatred of God. And when the hermit entreated him to love the God he hated, the blackness rose up in his soul like a black storm, and he bade the hermit be gone to his cell, but in vain. And the words of religion flowed on in a stream, and the eyes of the old man beamed with the love of God. And the black storm of the pagan's wrath broke into fury, and he took the hermit by the beard and bent his neck, and then he seized him by the head, and with his giant strength hurled him far over a cliff into the sea. And the black storm passed away as quickly as it had arisen, and Rodamond thought no more of the hermit than of a broken branch thrown out of his way and he spoke again to Isabella with courtesy. And as his passion grew, so grew his gentleness. And though he might with force have plucked the fruit, yet for that time he doth but kiss the bark. And always he hoped that of her own good will in time Isabella must yield, and with the courtesy of a Christian knight, the fierce pagan conducted Isabella and her dead to his own abode and he left her untouched save by words of love. But the words were to Isabella worse than blows, and in her heart she feared always that the passion of the Saracen would break all bounds, and she prayed for guidance. 
and into her thought there came a way to freedom. And as she saw the way, she said to Rodamond, Look you, there on this earth thousands as lovely as I, ready to do your will. What the others can give you, I cannot give. I shall love no more. But what the others cannot give, I can give. Not love, but the certain way to honour and glory above all men. I have a secret, and the secret is this. There are certain herbs that grow in the woods, and they must be gathered by a pure virgin at fitting times of the moon, and the herbs I know, and the times, and when the herbs have been gathered, they must be boiled with rue and ivy over a fierce fire of cypress wood, and the juice of the herbs, if it is thrice spread over the skin, will make the body free from the power of fire or the wounding of any weapon, and the virtue of the anointing will endure for a month, and then the herbs must again be gathered. And the promise of the anointing pleased Rodamond. In the depth of his mind he always thought that in some way he would also get the love of Isabella, and he thought to be the king above all men in bodily power and in love. And they set forth, and Isabella searched on rough cliffs and entangled forests for the plants she desired, and ever at her side stalked Rodamond. And when she had gathered what she wished, he cut for her with his sword branches of cypress wood to make the fire she had commanded. And long into the night Rodamond watched Isabella tending the boiling herbs, and saying, as he supposed, the mystic spells, and as it chanced, his men the day before had taken from certain merchants two great vases of Greek wine. And as Rodamont sat with his squires in the heated room, it came into his mind to drink of the wine. And never before had he tasted wine, at first being so taught by the law of his religion, and later being held back by pride. And now, out of hatred to his god, he drank of the Greek wine and the wine seemed to him like nectar, and he cursed his god and his religion that he had so long eschewed this delight. And he drank goblet on goblet, and through the mists of the wine he saw himself crowned with glory and love. And at last Isabella said to him, See now, the juice is ready for the anointing, but lest you fear I may give you a baneful poison, I will first anoint myself and therewith she anointed her neck, and she uncovered her beautiful bosom and anointed it, and the Saracen, hot with wine, gazed on her beauty. Then said Isabella, There is no poison in the juice, but now try you its virtue. Strike at my neck with your sword, and see if the blow can pierce the skin. And Rodamond, drunken with wine and desire, took up his great sword and struck Isabella on the neck and even as he struck she smiled and whispered, Zerbino, and her head rolled on the floor. And Rodamond came to his senses when he saw the deed, and he grieved with bitter grief. And it came into his mind to build for Isabella and her dead a great tomb, and it seemed fit to him to turn the little church where she had lived and been slain, into a sepulchre that could make her memory immortal. And by fear or favour, he gathered from all sides the masters of their crafts and about six thousand workers, and they quarried out of the mountains heavy stones. 
All round the little church they raised up a great wall, and in the midst of the church the two lovers were buried side by side, even as Isabella had prayed. And the height of the tomb was one hundred and fifty feet, and in structure it was like the superb tomb of Adrian on the banks of the Tiber. And to do honour to her memory, Rodamont threw over the river that flowed by the tomb a wooden bridge, and on the sides of the bridge was no parapet, and the bridge was only just wide enough for one horse to pass another. Close to the tomb, Rodamont built for himself a watchtower, and he made a law that when any knight approached to cross the river, he must meet him in full career on the narrow bridge. And if the knight were unhorsed or thrown into the stream, his arms were taken from him, and were hung upon the great tomb in honour of Isabella. And if the knights who were overthrown were Christians, they were taken prisoners and shut up in the tower, and as occasion offered, were afterwards transported to Algiers. But if the knights overthrown were Saracens, Rodamont kept only their arms to bedeck the tomb, but the men he allowed to go free to their own country. Now the bridge was built on the road between Italy and Spain, and formerly there was a ferry at the place, and many came to the bridge on their way from Italy or Spain, as the case might be, and all were forced to pay the toll with their arms, and some were made prisoners, and some lost their lives. And as the fame of the bridge was bruited far and wide, many knights came in the hope of winning honour by forcing the passage. But only twice was Rodamont overthrown, once by a naked madman, and once by the lance of a virgin warrior. Now the naked madman was Orlando, who, in his aimless wanderings, came to the river just as the bridge had been made, and before the tomb and the watchtower were finished. Lightly Orlando leaped over the barrier at the end of the bridge, and began to run across. But Rodamont, who was standing at the foot of the unfinished tower, cried out to him, Stop, crazy mannerless villain! This bridge is only for lords and cavaliers, not for you, foolish beast! No heed paid Orlando, and Rodamont, disdaining to use his sword, ran up to meet him and throw him into the river. Much he marvelled that a naked fool could resist him. In vain he put forth all his strength and all his skill in wrestling. Orlando used no skill, for all his skill had vanished, but his unequalled strength had been multiplied by madness, and at last he seized the gigantic Saracen, and crushing him in his arms, fell backward with him into the deep river. There he loosed his hold, and as easily as a fish swam to the bank, and without any thought of praise or blame, he passed on in his madness, and never looked back. Rodamont, breathless and crushed in the struggle, and weighted down by his armour, gained the shore long after Orlando had departed. And Rodamont never dreamed that the madman was Orlando, and for his defeat by a madman he cared nothing, but it was otherwise when he was cast down by Bradamant. Now the combat of Rodamont with the maiden knight Bradamant arose in this manner. It happened that the struggle between Orlando and Rodamont was witnessed by Flor de Lys, who was the devoted wife of Brandemarte, the dearest companion of Orlando. Many are the stories told by Boyardo and by Ariosto of the friendship of these two knights, and often one had risked his life for the other. 
Radimarte had been brought up as a pagan, but he was converted to Christianity by Orlando himself, and he became one of the most famous of the peers of Charlemagne. It will be remembered that when Orlando left Paris, disguised in black armour, in the hope of finding Angelica, he had told no one, not even the faithful Brandimarte, and Charlemagne had spoken bitterly of the desertion of Orlando when Paris was in danger, and Brandimarte had set out to find his friend and bring him back. And on his part he had not told Flordelis, lest she should try to dissuade him from the search. And after a time Flordelis had herself set out to find her lover, and in the course of her wanderings she came to the bridge, just as Rodomont was struggling with the mad Orlando. And in spite of the paladin's madness and his savage looks, he had been recognised by Flordelis. Now more than ever she prayed that she might find Brandimarte to ask him to go to the succour of Orlando. At last she found him, and together they came to the bridge, hoping to cross and to follow on the track of Orlando. But when Rodomont and Brandimarte met in mid-career on the narrow wooden bridge that quivered beneath them, the shock was so great that both with their horses were hurled into the river. Brandimarte was almost drowned, and, on the prayer of Flordelis, Rodomont, who had got to shore easily, went to the rescue. But he took Brandimarte's armour to hang on the tomb of Isabella, and the knight himself he made prisoner. Thereupon, Flordelis, in the deepest grief, set out to return to Paris, in the hope that she might find a champion to deliver her lover from Rodomont. And on the way she met the maiden knight, Bradamant, riding in full armour, and to her Flordelis told the story of Rodomont's bridge and the capture of her faithful Brandimarte. Eagerly, the maiden knight agreed to fight with Rodomont at the bridge, and by the mercy of God, in order that the great issues of the war of the Christians against the pagans might be fulfilled, there had come into her hand the enchanted golden lance which at first had been brought to France by Argalia, the brother of Angelica. But Bradamant did not know that the lance by its enchantment, with the least touch, sent to ground the strongest opponent, and she thought it was in no way different from any common lance with which she had unhorsed many a knight and when she challenged Rodomont, she first of all upbraided him for the death of Isabella, and said it would be a most fitting revenge if he died at the hand of a woman. And thereupon she made with Rodomont certain stipulations, and the terrible Saracen accepted all with the utmost gentleness, as if Isabella had spoken by the mouth of Bradamant. And the agreement was in this wise. If Bradamant were to conquer Rodomont, his arms were to be taken and hung on the tomb, and all the Christian prisoners were to be set free. To this Rodomont assented, and firmly passed his word that he would send to set them all at liberty if he were foiled by her. But if he were to be the victor, and nothing, he said, could be more certain, then he promised that for the sake of her fair face she should escape free with arms and armour. At this boastful offer the maiden smiled, not with mirth but anger, and in pure courage, or in sheer despair, she spurred to meet him on the narrow bridge. And Rodomont, as he charged, had no doubt that easily he would unseat his fair foe. But to his amazement, no
no sooner was his shield touched by the golden lance than he fell from his saddle and lay prone on the bridge as if deprived of all strength only by the wonderful skill of her horse rabican was bradamant able to pass him by when rodamant recovered his senses he went back to the shore in gloomy silence and after walking three or four paces threw on the ground his shield and helmet and then he drew off the rest of his dragon armour and cast it down on the stones and alone and on foot he departed though he did not forget to charge his squire to send to africa to liberate the prisoners according to his word rodamant departed and for a long time no more was heard of him except that he had shut himself up like a hermit in a cell and had vowed to abide there for a year and a month and a day and bradamant took his dragon skin armour and his great sword and hung them on the tomb of isabella and the arms of the christian knights that rodamant had hung up she took down to restore to the knights but the arms of the saracens she left there in honour of isabella and zerbino and she gave frontino in charge to flordelis to deliver to ruggiero with a message which he could not understand as is told in another story End of chapter 9